Welcome to The Year Ahead, a mini-series from the Heinemann Podcast. My name is Meenu Rami, and I'm the author of Thrive, Five Ways to Reinvigorate Your Teaching. I've always believed that teaching is harder if you do it alone, and teaching during once-in-a-lifetime pandemic is as hard as it gets. But by meeting educators around the world who are going through this too, maybe together we can share ideas, commiserate, and be a witness to each other's experiences. In this podcast series, we'll meet educators who are getting ready to return to school under the most challenging and unusual circumstances. In today's episode, we're meeting Catherine Sue from DC Metro area. Catherine will be teaching second grade in a Title I school this year and will need to adapt many of her current practices to meet this moment. More information about our guests and resources mentioned during the episode are in the show notes. Now, let's meet Catherine. Catherine, welcome. I'm so excited um, to get a chance to talk with you uh, this morning. I got to know you a little bit when my good friend um, and your good friend, Kristen Zimke, and I did teacher hour, and you just jumped right in and had so many good ideas and uh, lifted the work up and helped organize um, in numerous ways. And I was just, um, you know, really uh, moved by your giving spirit, but also how deeply you think about teachers and wellness and, you know, how do we kind of shape our own experiences, not just in the classroom, but in life. So I definitely want to talk more about that. Yeah, I can't believe you thought all those things in those few meetings that we were together. But no, it is such an honor to be here. And I'm really excited to kind of share my ideas um, and also maybe grow my ideas out loud talking to you today. Yeah, um, I think those are the best uh, friendships and and collaborations where, where people push each other's ideas. And I know Kristen has, Zimke has been one of those people in my life. So it's cool that we have that connection in common. So I'm just going to start with maybe the basics. So also for, for people who are listening in, they can get to know you a little bit. Um, I'd love to know a little bit more about you, your teaching journey, where you work, the context in which you teach, about your school, about your students. Yeah, and I'm going to try to make this as short as possible. <laughs> um, so I am born and raised in Atlanta. Um, I'm first generation Chinese American, and that kind of has shaped a lot of who I am today. Um, I started in a Title I charter school in South Carolina and then moved up to Arlington and taught in a Title I elementary school. I had the opportunity to pilot a one-to-one iPad program and it helped me realize that my passion is actually helping students rewrite their stories and to, or take ownership of their own stories. And iPads sort of became a bottomless toolbox of ways that students could really shine and see that they could be a reader, or they could be a writer, they are a creative person. So that became a powerful experience for me, which uh, led me to sort of share at conferences and online. And that's how I met Kristen is through our parallel sort of experience in the classrooms. And I just kind of stalked her at a conference was like, Hey, I don't have a book, but I do a lot of the things that you're sharing. And I promise I never copied you. <laughs> um, 
And then I went to the middle school that my students feed into and became the instructional technology coordinator and instructional lead teacher there, kind of just taking my vision from one classroom to an entire school and really wanted to create a personalized learning environment for all students where tech is just one part of the giant experience for students. And I sort of wanted to continue challenging myself. And I ended up working with Newzella for a year, which is an online digital nonfiction article platform. And I helped redesign their professional learning for all the different subject areas, both for in-person PD and online PD. So after this whole kind of ladder climbing, I realized that sometimes the bigger you go, the less you really feel like you're making one-on-one differences with students. So I actually decided to get back into the classroom. And this coming school year, I will be teaching second grade. So I've taught fourth through eighth grade. I was not planning on teaching second grade. I have (laughs) never taught second grade. So my anxiety has nothing to do with virtual learning. It has to do with being a good enough teacher for second graders who many of them are reading below grade level. So a little information about Arlington County is that um, it is the closest school uh, school district to D.C. It's a very uh, wealthy, affluent school district. And we have really, really awesome progressive educators there. I'm sure like many people may have heard of Arlington. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the little known, maybe not as common secret is that we call it North Arlington and South Arlington. And in South Arlington, there are a lot of uh, Title I schools or more diverse populations. And that's sort of been my hub and I am going to an elementary school that I've known for many years, but I never have been able to get a chance to work there. And they are about like 94% uh, students of color. So I'm really excited to get to know a new group of students and staff and yeah, try to yeah. teach second grade the best as I can. <laughs> There's so much in your introduction. You know, I think as an immigrant myself, as someone who for them, English is a is a second language. You just called out just some really fundamental things like your identity and then how does your identity shape the type of work and difference you want to make in the world and the tension of obviously being a very driven, talented person looking to make that dent in the universe that we all talk about but wanting to do it while remaining close to students and making one-on-one impact, but also having these opportunities, you know, to broaden your horizon, not have to quote unquote, leave the classroom. There are so many things that you're saying that resonate uh, with me. And hopefully I think will resonate with a lot of our listeners because it's so true for so many teachers that there is that yearning or a hunger to want to do more and have different types of experiences, but not leave the impact or the connection to students. And, and I I think it's funny that you said, you know, I don't have a book. I think it's uh, what I'm moved about your work is you're already building so many ways to help teachers, whether quote unquote, you have a book or not. 
And I think um, little secret, I guess, or maybe not so secret is like, you could have a book and maybe not make a difference, or you can just be doing your your amazing work and have a, a huge impact on on teachers. So I love these tensions. And I love that they're part of how you think about about your yourself. I don't know if you want to comment on that or I do. Yeah, that tension is my tangled identity that I have been working. I kind of almost took a hiatus from social media with education, just to kind of figure out me because I don't know if it has to do with, you know, Asian culture pressures. But there's this need to always do more, do more, um, make a bigger difference, be known, be recognized, and nothing is ever good enough. And that drive, at one point, I was really proud of myself for it, but it ends up kind of losing your own identity to sort of chase after it, and it made me really burn out. And so I've had to really figure out, like, why do I love education? Do I love education? And come back down. But, you know, it's hard to tell, like, family, like, okay, I'm not going to be making a ton of money. I'm not going to be this like big name author person like I was originally. I just want to be happy in life. And that just means I'm going to be a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. Related to this being a first generation immigrant, being Chinese in America as an American sets back in the day, there's this stereotype that all Chinese people are really smart in school. And for good reason, there's a lot of Asian people who are really academically uh, strong. I'm not one of them. Like everything about education, I did not do well. So I was the person who misbehaved and kind of crossed the line on a lot of things. And I was just making friends and stuff because I wasn't feeling accepted or successful in school. And so that's kind of like shaped the way that I teach because school didn't work for me. And there were these single stories right? Like going back to Chimamanda and Gose, the teachers talk of, of what Asian people are supposed to be like, or what you're, what you're supposed to do in school to be categorized as successful. And I'm just on a mission to change that. Absolutely. Um, when uh, most recently, um, Kamala Harris was, you know, uh, chosen as a VP on Twitter, um, many first generation American, uh, Indian Americans were like, well, now when we go back to our parents' home, there's like one more thing. You're not a doctor. You're not an engineer. You're oh. not even, you're not even selected to be, to be on the ticket as VP. So it was kind of funny, but, uh, it, obviously with all good humor, there's some truth to it. So this, um, you know, model minority or this single story. And I love that you use that phrase, single story. I used to show my, uh, juniors that TED talk at the beginning of the year. It was the tradition in my classroom. Um, and that idea that, you know, you have to uh, perform or achieve both in recognition, but even monetary, you know, accomplishments and make a certain level of, of living. I think uh, that that's an, that's a really real tension that you're calling out uh, in the Asian community, whether you're Chinese American or, or you're Indian American. And the fact that school didn't work for you and you can just now, you know, hopefully own that story of yours. I'm wondering like how that 
helps you connect with students who might be experiencing the same thing? How does that shape your work with students who might also uh, think that school doesn't work for them, or at least the way the school construct is presented to them doesn't work for them? Yeah, it um, it's shaped everything for me. For example, so when I had the iPads in my classroom and every student had an iPad, I refused to use it as a program for all the students. Instead, it was like, okay, let me have students try different ways of using the iPad. And then let me have students reflect on what works for them and what doesn't work for them. And slowly, some students would say, actually, can I use sticky notes instead of the iPad? I'm like, yes, absolutely. And then other students were like, oh, I actually like using this tool for jotting my reading instead of this app for jotting my reading. And it was really, really important. It's still always really important for me that I don't blanket anything. Mm -hmm. I have everybody try something always because sometimes you don't know what you like unless you try it. But after people try it, then I want students to figure out, does this work for me? Does this help me? Do I enjoy it? And let's continue going on for that. So then that way, students are learning the way that works best for them. And eventually, they'll be able to find more clarity of who they really are. And it gives other students a better perspective of who their classmates are, rather than these, um, like, again, the single stories that are put on them based on student data. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or their or, behavior in the classroom. Yeah, or a score. Yeah, or even the grouping names that we have for students. Like, oh, these are the L students. These are our challenging students. These are the rambunctious students. Like, can we not just say, oh, these students are writers. These students are creative. And yeah, so I really care a lot about supporting students and finding their identities and changing their story that they didn't get to choose in the first place and taking more ownership about it. One of the things that you said earlier is that not only will you be potentially dealing with remote learning, um, or I'd like to call it teaching during a once in a lifetime pandemic, um, but you're also dealing with a new age of students, new grade of students and their specific needs at that point in their learning journey. You know, I'm curious about what you know about your school's plan for this this year and what do you think your students will need as you return back and and meet them for the first time as second graders? So the school plan is related to the district plan, which is going to be all virtual at first and Monday is asynchronous. So we don't meet with students. There's no set schedule. It's a little bit more infirm, an informal with some intervention opportunities. Then Tuesday through Friday is a blend of synchronous and non-synchronous learning. And it does have a schedule of each subject. And each teacher will be teaching all the subjects rather than departmentalizing to help sort of streamline relationships and uh, just the tech logistics for students. And we have a large team with two else teachers, special ed teacher, elective teacher, all ready, and a couple of coaches all ready to sort of help with small groups virtually. 
Um, as far as like what our students need, we definitely will be starting off with a lot of sort of tech support and making sure all students have Wi-Fi. They know how to use the routines of knowing how to use the iPad and the couple of tools that we will be using for communication. So these are second graders who did not have iPads all year last year, and they were starting to give out iPads to them while they are at home. So we never had an in-person experience with them. So like in the past, when I had students who all had iPads at home, we did a lot of practice in the classroom, right? So then they had that modeling routine and practice in the Mm -hmm. classroom before going home. We won't have that. So I am interested in seeing, you know, how long this is going to take. And the fifth graders that I worked with this past spring, when COVID first started, I was working with English learners, and they had some challenges with Wi-Fi or with their iPads and their apps working properly. So if that's happening in fifth grade, you can only imagine how much support we're going to need to get all the second graders up and running. So there's that. The other needs I think will be important is just social interaction and joy and fun. When I would be in the morning meetings with a classroom teacher this spring to meet fifth graders whose family maybe do do not speak English, you can tell how sad they started getting because, and this could be generalizing, but this is also based on kind of my experiences. A lot of times, if your family doesn't speak English, mm-hmm. they are hesitant to let their children like leave the home because it feels really scary to have your child be sick or something bad happens to them, especially if you may not have health insurance or mm-hmm. just all these things. And so we had some students who would say that they haven't left their home in two weeks at all which is not good for their social, emotional, like their mental health. So how can we have more social interaction? How can we bring in some joy? And, you know, some of them, their TVs are always on. And during this time, of course, we also had a lot of really challenging issues that came up that students probably had to see or ask about, especially for my students are almost all of them are students of color. And seeing uh, conversations about Black Lives Matter, seeing like traumatic things on TV, I want to talk about it and help and make them feel seen and understood. But I also want to kind of bring in a little bit of joy because they're second graders and they kind of missed half of first grade. So I'm kind of coming in thinking I'm working with first graders. This access, whether it's tech or or language or resources keeps coming back, even the connection that you made that it's often the parents of, you know, English language learners who may not have the same access to stable Wi-Fi or, you know, variety of um, additional resources that they need to make um, learning a seamless experience um, at home for, for their children. So this idea of identity and access and equity is tied into everything and the way that you just are very intentional about it and the way that you think about it is is really important and I think something that we can all you know um, uh, learn from you and learn with you on, on that. 
Yeah, you said language, and I just realized I forgot about mentioning that how important it is for a lot of talk to happen for these students. Because I know when I grew up, yes, there was some English spoken at home, but mostly it was Mandarin. So if I'm thinking I didn't get any social interaction in a school for several months, I need as much talking in English with my classmates as much as possible. Mm-hmm. The aspect of supporting parents along with with students also comes in mind um, because for them, you know, whether they can have a job where they have the flexibility of working from home, but many of them are going to be juggling both the potential financial strain, but also, you know, imagine having a second grader at home the entire time. And they have to keep up with their schedule, make sure that they're logging in, make sure that they're able to follow along, and at the same time, potentially do a full-time job, either outside of of the home or inside of the home. So there is obviously a humongous strain on on students and teachers, but this strain then continues on to, to parents as well. Yeah, I and I have thought about that too, and I'm kind of... I think that part about teaching second grade for the first time as a virtual classroom is really interesting to me because I am thinking about how I had to be really independent as a little kid. So how independent can we get second graders virtually so that it doesn't put that much strain on the parents? And then I can communicate to the parents, like, look at all these things that your kiddo can do and we have a routine and I don't want you to have to worry about A, B, and C. You know, like it'll be interesting to see what can we have second graders do independently without their parents. And I don't I don't want to put you on the spot, but are there some things that you're already thinking that will need to um, change in your practice because you're you're facing this public health crisis and teaching during it? Yeah. So one thing I've been thinking a lot about, and this is actually the first time I'm talking out loud about it instead of in my head. So in the past, I've used, te- I've used technology forever and ever, right? And it's always been very, very digital heavy. And I am curious about having a virtual learning environment where we are not tech heavy. Mm-hmm. It sounds like an oxymoron, but how can we use as little technology as possible in a virtual learning environment? Yes, I'm thinking about second graders, but I think this could be really helpful for all students, even in the past with my eighth graders, is how can we make learning as tangible and social and have as much movement as possible, even though we're virtual? So like, for example, I was thinking, you know, instead of having like a digital word wall, how can we have students create fun word walls in their homes? Or instead of a digital worksheet where we are practicing letter sounds, you know, can you go in your home and find two things that start with ER, like grab cans, grab something in your home, let's all share it. And then the movement break is, okay, go put that back in your house, because we don't want your parents to have a hot mess after (laughs) class. Yeah, you know, so how can we minimize as much technology as possible during this tech heavy type of learning experience? I just feel like that's really important to not rely on all the digital tools that seem cool because our kids need to touch things and feel things and move and 
um, and not just be on a screen. This screen time um, issue is really interesting one. Before the pandemic, there was a lot of public dialogue amongst um, thought leaders and parents about what is the appropriate amount of screen time and how to manage that and navigate that. And since the pandemic, because uh, we have such a terrible coordinated uh, federal level response to it, and because people have to work to make a living, parents are like, why isn't there more content for my child? Why can't I just put them in front of a screen? So this complete reversal almost it is um, happening. And I think um, two tips that I learned from, again, Twitter, because I, I spent so much time there. Um, John Spencer, um, if you follow him on Twitter, he uses show and tell even with his college age students to uh, often create that community, that sense of community in the classroom, like, you know, share a couple of things or objects that are helping you cope with these times or share a couple of things that, you know, tell us like how you're feeling at this moment. And I think show and tell, whether it's college students or second graders are going to be one of those tools in a teacher's toolbox during this um, teaching time that people can use. And then it was actually, um, again, Kristen Zimke, our friend, um, who also shared the idea of always having books nearby when you're teaching online, so that if things are not going well, or the lesson kind of falls apart, or it's just not working, you immediately have something to do or read aloud with, um, potentially have a discussion with students, um, make meaning of that text that you just read together. And so I totally agree with you that this idea that maybe less is more and simplify, 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 um, especially regarding tech in this time might be something important for, for educators to consider. Yeah, I like that idea about the picture books as not part of the lesson, but as your emergency <laughs> plan, <laughs> yeah. which is awesome. Like, that's the best emergency plan. It takes no time to plan that. <laughs> yeah. To grab a book. yeah, I just um, saw that yeah. tweet yesterday. I think uh, Kristen did like a webinar and that was one of the tips that she gave. And it was very, yeah. very astute. I saw um, a couple of posts about, you know, teachers who are using puppets and stuff to tell stories. And I was thinking about, you know, could we all have stuffed animals as role plays for reading aloud books and stories and that the class ends up learning each other's like stuffed animal of some kind. So there's some sort of community thing. So again, I'm spitting out ideas that may not be what I do exactly. And it may crash and burn, but just like the concept of how can we use less technology during virtual learning, yeah. even though that sounds like the craziest oxymoron ever. <laughs> no, I think it makes it makes a lot of sense. The FaceTime or the literal, you know, synchronous time together um, should be about that community building, making meaning together, tackling new concepts together. And then the application of those things can be, you know, on students' time uh, with support from, from the educator. But it, it totally makes sense that that learning needs to be social and that meaning needs to be made together 
I'm also totally talking out of my league because I, I know nothing about second graders. Um, having taught only high school students and college students, this, this is a totally a new territory for me. One of the things that I've, I've learned that you, you're actually starting um, this business um, or, or this brand or this idea that you're putting out in the world uh, called Let Me Try That. Um, and, and it's all about experimentation and it's all about literally what uh, it's, it's a good name because it's literally about trying new techniques to, to improve um, your life's experience. Um, so I, I want to, I want to ask you more about that. What's the genus of that idea? What's the, where, where did it emerge from? Where is it at? Um, what could people gain from learning more about that? Yeah. So it emerged from just really wanted to have ownership on something. And it was kind of a practice on understanding my identity better kind of because because I feel like a business is your brand and then you have to understand what is the brand of who you are so I realized that I love trying new things mm -hmm. except I didn't try a lot of things for a majority of my life so I was married for seven years and I woke up one I mean it really wasn't this Hollywoodish, but I one day just realized that I'm not happy in the kind of life that I am living and I need to take a risk and just try to live the life that I want to live. But when I started over, I realized I didn't know how to do basic things. Like how do you eat at a restaurant by yourself? Didn't know how to do that. I had to add, ask my sister-in-law. I didn't know what I like to do in silence. I didn't know what I like to do in the city. So I had to try things like go to an art museum, go ride a bike using bike share. So it was it, it felt like I was like 30 going on 13 and learning little things. But the more I learned to try something, the more I learned something either about myself or about people around me or about the world. And it just built my confidence up and it built my ability to have more compassion. And, and now I have all these hobbies that I care about and things I like to do. Um, and so I really want to encourage people to try new things, whether that's students in the classroom trying something to help them realize like, oh, this tool helps me be a writer. Or in your real life, like, oh, I like trying these vegan foods to eat. And that's going to be part of my identity that I love being vegan, or I love puzzles. So that's what let me try that is is just kind of figuring out how to take who I am and my creativity and turn it into something for good for adults. It's kind of like my happy way of helping with mental health. I, I think so many people can uh, can relate to this, uh, whether it's a personal transformation, um, like the one that you described, or literally just being a human in the present moment. I've been reading uh, this book and we'll, we'll share a link to it as a resource. It's called When Things Fall Apart. Um, and it's been an incredibly uh, helpful way for me to process some of the things that, uh, that I'm going through. And, and like I said, just being a human in this, in this present moment. Um, I think w what you said about 
you know, ultimately we are responsible for the experience we have in the world and in our life. And I think this kind of um, taking this creative approach that if I try things that I haven't done before, I might experience or I might be able to create the experiences that I didn't know I could have. I think that's, it's such a simple, but I think all great ideas are at their very core, very simple. And I love your idea of, let me try that. Like it's about experimentation. It's about um, exploration and it's about discovery. And um, if people want to learn more about it, we will link to it um, as part of this, this episode. Um, because you, you pay so uh, much attention to, um, your own well-being and also how other people can care for, for themselves, you know, what does self-care look like for you right now? And, uh, are there resources or things that you'd want to share with, with others? Um, yeah. So self-care for me is so many things. I like to journal a lot. And reading self-help books is really helpful. Um, I go, I, I go to trauma therapy, and I started um, a little bit less than a year ago, so it's almost one year, and that has been life-changing for me. I know that there's a stigma with therapy that now I, mm-hmm. I often talk a lot about with like my closest friends is just how powerful trauma therapy is. Like that, you can actually recover from trauma. It's not something you just have to learn how to put band-aids on, you truly can overcome it. But sometimes that also means self-care means drawing some boundaries with some people that you've always thought were the closest to you, but Mm. you realize that they're not healthy for your well-being right now. And what's most important is taking care of you first. So so that is really important to me. As far as um, when it comes to teaching and education, I think some of the things I'm thinking about for this fall is being okay to own less. So like mm-hmm. as a teacher, you want to have ownership of everything, but it's impossible, I feel like, to make every video lesson, every document, everything for your students every single day and still have a uh, happy mood every single day. You're just going to stress yourself out. And so I'm so prioritizing myself that I just have to uh, be willing to say like, okay, I'm going to have some, my colleague make this video and I'm going to use this document of somebody else. And yes, it's not owner. It's not owning it, but I'm going to be okay with it and pick my battles. I think that's going to be so important for, for us coming this fall. So that's going to, I say that now. And again, when we do this, if we do this podcast again, I might be like, yeah, but I couldn't handle it. I had to end up doing everything. But that's my goal right now. No, I think it's such a good call out. Um, this uh, collecting resources and leaning on each other is going to be um, so important in, in this coming year. Um, because that old cliche that, you know, it it's, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's going to literally be 180 days of marathon. And um, we want to particularly call out that, collaborating with your colleagues so that you're not doing everything is such an important tip that you just you just share. I'm just really grateful for for your time and the really um, personal um, 
stories and the open heartedness with which you approach your work um, means a lot to me. Um, and that kind of vulnerability is incredibly brave. And um, I, I am lucky to, to get to know you in this way. And, and I'm really grateful for your time. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. I've always admired you. I really have so much enjoyed getting to know you. And I think that something, I don't know if you even know this about you, but you are so grounded and humble and real in a space that it's so, I feel like difficult to do that. And to be able to do that, you have to hold so tightly to who you are. And I wasn't really great at that. So I just want you to know how much I respect that part about you in addition to everything else you've done professionally. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, that's incredibly kind, kind of you. And thank you so much. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George. Sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette. And our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann Podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.